I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. In this week's episode of the podcast, I'm talking with Jeff Speck, city planner and urban designer who advocates for more walkable cities. And he's on the line from Boston, Massachusetts. So I thought that I would ask you about your early career first uh, and, you know, if you had any role models early on and perhaps if you could talk about what you may have learnt from them or how they might have inspired you. Uh, that's a great question. So I'm someone who studied architecture and liberal arts and um, I was going to go to architecture school. I'd been an investment banker for a couple of years, just kind of oh, wow. to see if I could be both both happy and rich, but it, it didn't. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, but it, but it, you know, I was able to save some money, which helped with my education. But I actually heard a lecture in 1989, so I was probably uh, 25 years old or so. Um, I heard a lecture in 1989 by a fellow who ended up being my my biggest mentor, which was Andre Stuani. And Andre Stuani and his partner and wife, Elizabeth Clater Zyberg, were the kind of most prominent initiators in the U.S. of what came to be known as the, the new urbanism movement. But I think back in 1989, no one was calling it that yet. And uh, Andre used to give this talk called Towns versus Sprawl. And eventually he got sick of giving that talk. He probably gave it 300 times over couple decades. I now give versions of that. I'm not sick of it yet. And I feel that people really need to hear it. But basically this talk, which he gave at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, uh, when I was at a very formative point in my career, um, showed that there are really only two fundamentally, two fundamental ways, tested ways to build communities around the world. I mean, there's a million ways to make a city, but there's only two things we've done by the thousands. And that's um, the traditional neighborhood, which we can define very carefully in, in planning terms, um, and I will if you give me the chance, um, and then suburban sprawl. And suburban sprawl, unlike the tr traditional neighborhood, which evolved naturally over time in response to human needs, suburban sprawl was an invention um, embracing this amazing other new invention, the automobile, uh, at mid-century, or really a little before that in the U.S., um, where a decision was made that life would from you know heretofore forward be be centered around having the the car as this prosthetic device that we were going to need to live our lives just to get a you know can of cat food um, and this lecture basically showed how these two different models worked how we had a choice between the two models um, why it was illegal currently to build the model that we liked better um, and, and it really struck a nerve with me because I knew that there were certain places in my, in my own life, in my own experience, there were certain places that I loved spending time and other places I hated spending time. And, um, and you know, the scales fell from my eyes and I came to understand kind of technically, physically, what made these places different. And I, I had a couple revelations when I heard this talk. The first was that, that 
you know, it was the best story I'd ever heard. And it was a great way for someone who was going into design. It was a great way to reorient my design career to hopefully have the most impact on, on quality of life for the most people. Um, but also that it had to be a book. And I had some experience in publishing. I knew how to get books published and had some connections there. And um, it was such a great talk. And I wrote Andres a letter and I said, let me make this a book for you. And uh, he never wrote me back. Finally, in 2000, after I'd worked for the company for seven years, finally in 2000, um, we published a book called Suburban Nation, which ended up being probably the most influential, certainly the best-selling planning book of that decade um, that told that whole story. But um, I'm definitely someone who had the luck to discover the right mentor at the right time. And, and um, when I graduated architecture school in 93, I went to work for their firm where I, where I spent a full decade with Andres, with Liz, um, doing projects for cities, for downtowns, uh, and a lot of new town work, a lot of uh, new communities based on, on these principles. That's great. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how and maybe even why you think you came to be so passionate about and become an advocate uh, specifically for walkable cities. Well, it's funny that that's my new shtick, right? That's 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 my my um, category. <laughs> people, people who bring me in to work with them. And I give a lot of lectures all around the the world, and I've actually lectured in Perth, in Adelaide, in uh, um, Sydney, uh, not in Melbourne. I just went to Melbourne to see Melbourne because I I think it's an amazing city. Um, that's nice to hear. <laughs> but uh, when I give lectures, people want to hear about the walkable city, and that's how I framed what what I do because I found that it's the best way to communicate what we do. Mm. So, what we do has. Uh, you know, initially it was called, once it got a name, it was actually first called, in the 80s, it was called Neo-Traditional Town Planning, which turned off the, the liberals like me, right? But it's <laughs> it was a return to traditional techniques of making community. Eventually, thanks to a book by Peter Katz in the early 90s, maybe the mid-90s, um, this whole movement became known as the New Urbanism. Which turned off the conservatives, right? Who hate who hates hate the term urban and think it has all sorts of negative connotations. But um, um, that movement is actually now a organization and a community of a couple thousand people who belong to the Congress for New Urbanism. I just got back a couple weeks ago from the thirtieth annual uh, Congress for New Urbanism uh, this year. It's international. There are Australian members. Um, and uh, uh, there were more than a thousand people at that conference, but it, it's it's become a whole movement. Some people call it just best practices in city planning, right? Because we've now learned that if you plan around the car, you just make a city that's bad for everyone, including drivers. But the the discovery I made, and uh, I'm certainly not the first, and, and honestly, I don't remember enough about how it happened, but what I realized was that it was much easier to communicate in a, within a framework of walkability. And in fact, it was being walkable, which implies being bikeable, being served by transit and other forms of mobility that aren't automotive. Um, being walkable is the best way to determine whether a community is following best practices in urban design. And if it is neo-traditional, if it is new urban, then it's walkable. 
And what I discovered doing all my lectures and speaking with mayors, and I've worked with a ton of mayors, is that that's a great way to com communicate the message. But then, moreover, if you're framing everything within that, that rubric, um, you find that you do make better decisions when you're making design, design choices in cities because you just ask, does this make walkability better or does it make it worse? Um, and so when it came time, when, 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 I, had, when I had so much to say, uh, you know, a, a decade or so after Suburban Nation, when I had so much to say from my experience working with mayors, working in cities, seeing successes and failures, um, and seeing, you know, opportunity not taken advantage of in so many places, um, I found that that by calling my book Walkable City and organizing the techniques and strategies for making cities better within that framework was was a great way to to communicate it, to organize it, and also to to affect to affect the kind of change that people want to see. So um, I, I've just found that advocacy for the walkable city is the best way to advocate for good planning. Well, I guess, yeah, we can probably all imagine what a walkable city looks like, but I wonder if there's a broader def definition of that that you work with, um, and perhaps maybe more importantly, um, you know, why it is so important to society? Why do we need walkable cities? Well, I'll start with the Actually, I'll start with your second question, and then we'll move into the mm. definition. Um, and you know what you're basically asking is um, is the um, uh, two categories in which I generally have conversations with cities and when I give talks. First, I talk about why walkability, um, and then I talk about uh, how to achieve it. The discussion of why walkability is a funny evolution in my own thinking because I witnessed for years, both with my mentors and, and me, how we would argue, effectively arguing for more walkable cities, um, using the terms that we were familiar with in the experience of our, uh, of our lives as designers, not that effectively. So we would be arguing for, for more beautiful places, for more well-organized places, for more efficient places, for, um, you know, generally speaking, a higher quality of life and more social spaces. But the, for me to become more effective in successfully arguing for more walkable places, it was actually discovering three other professions that were arguing for the same thing, but much more, much more effectively that, that people listened to. And those were the um, environmentalists and the economists and the epidemiologists. So the environmentalist argument is a fascinating one because it's historically been anti-city. Uh, if you look at the history of the environmental movement in the U.S. and I think elsewhere, um, it was always about, you know, cities are bad, they pollute, they're dirty, um, move to the countryside if you want to have a, a lighter footprint. Um, and, and that philosophy was only reinforced by the uh, focus on climate change because people were measuring CO2 output um, per square mile. And we saw all these maps of our countries and our cities mapping CO2 per mile. And of course, if you do that per square mile, it looks like the cities are bad and the countryside, you know, the suburbs are better and the countryside is good. You know, these maps are like red in the cities, yellow in the suburbs, green in the countryside. But of course, that's the wrong way to measure carbon and someone realized about 20 years ago that it makes much more sense to measure carbon per capita, not carbon per square mile, because 
there's only so many of us in the country at any given time. We can choose to live where we have the lighter or the heavier footprints. And when you started measuring carbon output per capita, the maps entirely flipped. And it's very clear, you know, if you move from the countryside to the suburbs, you're going to cut your um, energy consumption slightly and your carbon output slightly. But if you move from the suburbs to the city, you will cut your your carbon footprint by by in half or more, considerably more. Anyone in the U.S. who moves to, to, you know, the average American who moves to New York City will end up producing about a third of the carbon that they did before. Um, and um, once people realize that, once people realize that the, you know, cities were the greatest way to get people to uh, have a lighter carbon footprint, um, we were armed with extremely powerful environmental uh, arguments for making places more walkable. Um, secondly, the economic arguments, if you step back and think about it, it kind of makes sense that if you live in a society, and for most of Americans, I'd say probably most Australians, this is the, the circumstances where you literally need to drag a uh, you know, expensive two-ton machine with you wherever you go just to accomplish everything, that's a tremendous drain on the economy. <laughs> Mm. Um, you know, the typical American is spending about $10,000 a year uh, on their vehicle. And the um, uh, and that's just the personal cost to us independently. If you look at the social costs, uh, this, this hasn't been done many times, but the most recent study I saw um, showed that, you know, for every transportation choice you make, uh, there's a certain amount of subsidy, right? If you If you take transit, and you spend a dollar on transit, chances are, at least in the U.S., you're being subsidized about 50 cents on that dollar. Um, if you drive in the U.S., you're being subsidized about $9.50 on each dollar that you spend. And that has to do with, with fuel subsidies. It has to do with highway construction, with highway policing, with ambulances, with all the other costs, um, which also, of course, include um, tremendous wasted time and, and, um, and environmental impacts. So, both on us individually and on society as a whole, driving, just because you're dragging this two-ton thing with you wherever you go is tremendously inefficient economically. Um, and actually in the US, poor people are paying more for transportation than they are for housing, a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So um, that, that's part of some larger economic arguments. Um, and then finally, the epidemiologist, it was um, an amazing day. I, I, I I noticed that the book was published on um, August 7th, 2004. A book came out called Urban Sprawl and Public Health by three epidemiologists. And they said in no uncertain terms, they weren't, you know, they weren't, they didn't begin their effort looking at city planning, but they began their effort saying, why do we have the first generation of Americans who are expected to live shorter lives than their parents? Why are, you know, fully a third of children born after 2000 expected to become diabetics um, in the U.S.? And they identified that the problem wasn't just our diet, but in fact, um, you know, it's calories in and calories out that we've become inactive. And we've been become inactive because of the, uh, basically, the elimination of the useful walk. And so it was no longer, as it used to be, normal for us to burn calories just going about our daily lives. We were spending that time sitting. Um, instead, you know, people say sitting is the new smoking. And of course, when you're driving, um, you're sitting and you're endangered. Um, 
so these epi epidemiologists said, you know, our f the physical form of our landscape is what's making us a, a morbid uh, society. Moreover, uh, last count, we're losing 46,000 Americans a year in car crashes. Um, several million Mar Americans a year are permanently injured. And two million are permanently injured in car crashes every year. I'm sure the global statistics are staggering compared to that. Um, we kind of write it off as a natural outcome of our lifestyles that there's a very high chance that we're going to die or be injured. Uh, a good chance and a very high chance that, we, that we'll die, a good chance we'll die and a high chance that we'll be injured in a car crash uh, at some point in our lives. In fact, where you live has a tremendous out, out, uh, you know, um, influence on that, that outcome. So if you live in San Francisco or New York or Portland uh, or probably Sydney or, or Melbourne, um, you have about a three in a thousand, sorry, three people per 100,000 per year. Three people per 100,000 per year are dying in car crashes. If you live in, uh, in Orlando, it's 20 people <laughs> per 100,000 per year. And most American cities are somewhere in between. Dallas is 12, um, et cetera. So where you choose to live, or honestly, whether we make our communities more walkable or more drivable, is the principal determinant of our likelihood of being killed or permanently injured in a, in a car crash. So these are all all uh, arguments that that support making places more walkable. I have to say that since I wrote Walkable City now, um, a number of other powerful motivations have arisen, but the, the one of them um, that's gotten a lot more attention lately is equity and how, for example, in the U.S. at least, you know, people talk about bike infrastructure as uh, elitist, right? And they think the typical Bicyclist is the, the mammal, the middle-aged male in Lycra, you know, who's out for <laughs> some exercise. Um, when in fact, 38.5% uh, of the bike commuters in America are from the poorest 25% of the population. Um, if you are poor or elderly or a person of color or certainly indigenous or, um, uh, or Hispanic in the U.S., you are much more likely to be, be hit, hit by a car and killed in traffic. Um, there's all of these clear um, equity gaps, also in terms of asthma and who's suffering from the uh, pollution that's coming alongside highways, um, that the, you know, the most vulnerable among us and the most disenfranchised among us are the ones who um, are suffering the most from car culture and have the most to gain from us becoming a more walkable society. Do you want to then touch on your definition of what, uh, of what a walkable city is then in light of all of that? While my list of, of reasons and organizations and kind of orientations that all advocate in support of more walkable places is continually changing, or I should say growing, um, my definition of what makes places walkable hasn't changed in, in a decade or more. Because I, I think it turned out pretty well uh, and pretty uh, uh, complete which is essentially that if you're going to get people to walk, and that's, that's the goal, right, to increase the number of people, people walking, um, then the walk has to be as good as the drive. And to do that, it needs to satisfy four things simultaneously. The walk needs to be useful, it needs to be safe, it needs to be comfortable, and it needs to be interesting. So the useful walk is, a, is a, something that was destroyed by zoning. 
Uh, we used to have most of our daily needs within walking distance. We don't anymore because once we decided that the automobile was our principal way of getting around, it became quite normal to separate everything from everything else and push things far apart from each other. Um, clearly, if you want a walkable place, the uh, unavoidable first step is to include as much as everything as you can. And when you're building new towns, that's fairly easy. Didn't used to be because, for example, you couldn't get insurance. You couldn't get a federally backed mortgage on a row house that had a store on the ground floor. Didn't fit into any of the categories. Um, those rules are changing. Uh, and the development community has changed a fair amount. But um, the um, generally the ruthless separation of everything from everything else still exists on many land use maps that are overlaid on our on our nation almost anywhere you go and I think Australia is not is not so different um, so when you are uh, building new places you need to need to basically subvert or replace uh, the existing sprawl sprawl creating map but when you're working in existing cities and this is less the case in Australia than in the US but um, certainly it's partly the case um, there tends to be in our downtown cores an undersupply of housing. There's an oversupply of everything else. It isn't until you get a real jobs housing balance in your downtown that it can really sing because you need a daytime crowd, you need a nighttime crowd. If a restaurant, if you're going to have great restaurants, great gyms, um, you really need 24-hour occupation, which means places to live and work, and then you get the places to shop and worship, and everything else uh, uh, shows up. Um, the safe walk is where I spend most of my time, and it's certainly something that needs tremendous attention in Australia as well. Um, your road standards are not so different from ours. They're much closer to ours than they are to the European standards. More and more European cities, uh, even before Vision Zero became a term, uh, those cities were embracing Vision Zero style uh, tactics in terms of designing a driving environment in which drivers do not feel safe going fast. And so there's about two dozen things, I'll name some of them, but there's about two dozen things that add up to drivers going above 20 miles an hour or below 20 miles an hour. And I should say a car going 35 miles an hour is about five times as likely to kill you as a car going 25 miles an hour. So uh, that's super important. A car going 25 miles an hour um, is much, much more likely to kill you than a car going 15 miles an hour. So um, anything we can do to bring speeds down um, is the principal thing you can do to both make pedestrians feel safe, but actually to save lives. And so um, we look at the number of lanes in every street. We look at how wide those lanes are, understanding that wider lanes invite higher speeds. We look at whether there's there's parking or some other protection against the curb to make the sidewalks safe. Street trees are super important, both in protecting sidewalks and in slowing uh, traffic. Um, Multi-lane one-way streets are were an epidemic that spread across the U.S. that half our cities still have that we're working now to get rid of almost everywhere. Um, signals where you could have stop signs instead, or in Europe, they're just eliminating all signs and creating naked streets, intersections where it's every, you know, every intersection is a negotiation. Everyone's going slow and looking at everywhere, everyone else. Of course, protected bike facilities um, and other types of, of bike lanes. Um, you know, whether, whether a corner is sharp or is allowed to really swoop at a, what's called a high design speed. And what's remarkable is um, that in the U.S., the standard 
current engineering practice, which you kind of have to do to follow the law as an engineer, is literally to design roads for speeds well above the posted speed limit with this idea that you have to make it forgiving, quote unquote, for the drunk at midnight, which is a perfectly fine, it's a perfectly fine um, strategy if you're designing a highway. Because on a highway, you set your speed based on the speed limit. Uh, and you decide, you know, if you're me, you set your cruise control for 10 miles an hour over the speed limit. You know, you won't get a ticket. But um, if your speed is the constant based on the speed limit that's posted, then anything you can do to remove friction, such as wider lanes, clear zones, no trees, no intersections, one-way traffic, anything you can do to remove friction makes the streets safer. However, if you're in an urban environment, then you're not going to set your speed based on the speed limit. You're going to set your speed based on your sense of friction. And so all those things that highway engineers learned on highways, they've applied to our downtown streets, making them much more dangerous. And so it's actually a rule, as I said, that you have to design streets for a higher speed than you want the drivers to go. And um, it's actually a struggle to get um, narrower lanes. You know, it's a struggle to remove one-way streets and replace them with two-way streets. Um, you know, I've seen some streets in Sydney that were barely wider than the car, um, <laughs> and that was amazing. But you have, you have exceptions there as well. Uh, or I should say that's kind of an exception to your standard engineering practice, which is pretty wide lanes, lots of lanes, um, and roads that look much more like American roads than European roads. Remarkably, uh, you know, the country that probably makes pedestrians safest and caters most to pedestrians and to bicyclists is the Netherlands. And uh, Waze, you know, Waze, which does traffic modeling, they did a poll of thousands and thousands of drivers in hundreds of countries. And the country that was the named the most satisfying place to be a driver was the Netherlands. <laughs> so wow. it's, not a, it's not like us versus them. It's really if you create an environment that's designed around people and pedestrians and bikes, it works for everybody. And if you design an environment around cars, first of all, you invite a ton more driving. You invite traffic that would not have occurred otherwise. You induce demand for people to use the streets. You make pedestrians and cyclists unsafe and dead. Um, and actually, you create an environment that's miserable to drive in because it's just so competitive and toxic in terms of the way that people drive. Um, traffic engineering in the U.S. at least, and I would say Australia is not so different, is a completely um, negligent, criminally negligent uh, activity where from the very highest level on down, um, there's a mass manslaughter going on that, that could easily be fixed if the standards were to change. But no one is no one's mounting that class action lawsuit quite yet that might cause, cause that to happen. But it's actually been a tremendous tragedy with with hundreds of thousands of excess deaths every year um, that were preventable, that are preventable. That's only two categories. There's two, there's two more categories, the comfortable walk and the useful walk. Um, the comfortable walk has to do with, it's a bit, it's a bit um, counterintuitive because we all like to like climb mountains and get wide open views and, and be on top of the world. But actually the kind of places that we enjoy the most are, are uh, have, have good edges. You know, we're drawn to outdoor living rooms. And a plaza is only as good as its walls. A street is only as good as its edges. Um, all animals, humans among them, we're told by the evolutionary biologists, all animals seek 
Prospect and refuge. Prospect means you can see your predators before they attack you, and refuge means that you feel that your flanks are covered. And if you don't feel that your flanks are covered, you don't feel comfortable. And so making comfortable spaces has to do with um, not having parking lots against street edges, having buildings against the edge of the street that are tall enough to shape the space, making sure that, you know, we don't have too many what are called missing teeth on our blocks of just empty lots with, where a sidewalk should be well lined. Um, so a lot of work we do as urban designers is to design not the buildings, but the space, the space between the buildings and make sure that it's well shaped. Um, and then finally, the interesting walk is a little more obvious than the comfortable walk. Um, we like to be entertained if we're faced with blank walls, with parking lots, with exposed parking decks. Um, with buildings that repeat over and over again, with just slick, slippery, you know, reflective mirror glass or other sort of edges, um, we're not enticed to walk. Uh, we need signs of humanity. You know, we humans are among the social primates. Nothing interests us more than other people. We need to know that other people are there or they're not there. We need windows, doors, you know, eyes on the street, as they're called, that give us a sense that humans might be there. Um, and then additionally, we want the sense of many people involved in the design of the place. So if a building is too uh, mechanistic or too repetitive um, or just, you know, too much of one architect for too many, you know, meters, um, we're, we're bored and we'd much rather see um, building facades broken up into multiple hands. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a flaw of current real estate development and just current global capital that we tend to build places very quickly and very large these days. And we've actually developed some very interesting techniques for creating variety and interest when that happens. For example, it's quite normal here in the U.S. for a new apartment building uh, to be 500 feet long. When we do that here, we actually would make it look like two or three buildings. We would create what's called a, a demise line in the facade and force the architects to hand it off to different people in their business and actually actually convince us that this one building is three or four different buildings um, by having different windows, different roof details, different everything. Um, so breaking up big buildings and then not allowing buildings to repeat are a key aspect of keeping places interesting as well. So essentially you have to do, <clears throat> you have to do all four of those things to make places uh, really sing in terms of inviting walkability. I think a lot of people who do studies into making places more walkable, as I do, are focused mostly on, on safety. Um, but my focus has always been on all four of those elements, which starts with zoning and, and ends with architecture um, to create places that are truly attractive to people on foot. That's fascinating. Um, I, I want to go back quickly to the aspect of cars and, you know, given all that we know now about the detrimental effects that it can have on a city when a city is designed around cars and not people, as you say, why is it that we are still obsessed with cars and driving, um, you know, given all that we know and not least the cost of petrol? You know, what is it about humanity that, <laughs> that uh, is still so obsessed about that? Well, I love cars. I mean, I've always, when I was a kid, I got Car and Driver magazine and Road and Track magazine. And I've always owned the sportiest car I could afford. And um, driving is fun. Driving <laughs> is uh, you know, it's athletic. You can be totally out of shape and be a very sporty driver. Um, G-forces feel good. Um, the power, putting your foot down and 
seeing the results is very satisfying. Uh, it's a status symbol. You can be struggling in many other aspects of your life, and if you have a good car, uh, you can feel good about yourself. There's so many things that cars, uh, so many ways that cars satisfy people that it's really, <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to um, break that habit. Um, but I think there's a deeper problem, which is that our initial enthousi enthusiasm for cars which caused us to reshape our environment around them has now caused a circumstance where we're utterly dependent on our cars. So it's very easy to pick on people, particularly here in the U.S., and say, you know, you shouldn't drive so much or, you know, you're, you're, you're not being sustainable. Um, and by the way, getting an electric car doesn't fix it because 80% of the pollution that comes from your car uh, is things other than tailpipe emissions. And, um, you know... Electric cars are greener than regular cars, but still most of the impacts on the environment that cause cars cause are independent of the tailpipe emissions. So, um, and by the way, the principal, principal impact that cars have on our environment is the way they cause us to spread out and just have more infrastructure and, and fatter lives, right? But, but the problem is I think that we've created the circumstance where the majority of our citizens um, actually now can't live without a car. And so we have to do everything we can to add a multimodal, you know, possibility to our suburban places to put in great, safe bike facilities. So actually biking around the suburbs uh, is a viable choice and a pleasant choice. Um, and then we have to get more people to move to our cities and make our cities, um, uh, you know, put, put a lot more housing in our cities. Um, which are there ready to receive, receive it um, so that people can make the choice to move both from the suburbs and the countryside to the city as globally that's you know, been happening forever, um, but also as our um, population grows, we want to see most of that growth happen in the city where people can have a lighter footprint and a better lifestyle um, than in the suburban area. I don't know how it is in Australia, but it, it's, it's become absolutely ridiculous in the U.S., for example, the, the, the half an hour lines you see, people just dropping their kids at school. I mean, it's, we don't just have a work commute now. We have a work and a school commute. Um, and the, the number of hours that the average American at least spends in traffic um, to the detriment of their health and their mental and emotional well-being um, is just shocking. But I, I think that, that it's less um, instrumental, less effective to try to address people's enthusiasm for the automobile when I think the real problem is, is a unavoidable dependence on the automobile due to the way we've planned our cities. So I, I want to ask you a question now about, you know, city living uh, and, you know, which I think goes hand in hand with being in areas that are more dense and more densely populated and whether attitudes around that, whether you've noticed a change since COVID, the current pandemic, whether attitudes and thoughts about living in the city has been affected by COVID. And, you know, maybe based on that, what does the future of city living look like to you or sitting city planning? Has that changed in any sense to you or other urban planners? Well, I think there's two things to point out. One is that cities were safer during COVID, uh, which most people don't know. Um, and secondly, that if people don't know that, then it doesn't really matter. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> the data, the data are very clear. Uh, some of the cities, this is this is anecdotal, but it's also representative. Um, many of the cities that had the lowest uh, spread of COVID and the fewest deaths from COVID were the most dense. And the statistics are clear now in, in a multinational, you know, enormous study that your risk of getting COVID in denser areas was no higher. It was pretty much identical to your risk of getting COVID in less dense areas, but your risk of dying from COVID in less dense areas in the countryside in suburbs was considerably higher than your risk of dying from COVID in the city. And people saw that evidence and they thought, oh yeah, because there's better hospitals in the city and everything else. But it actually, um, they now believe that it's because people who live in cities are just more physically fit uh, because they're they're walking and taking transit. So what the doctors who have nothing to do with city planning ended up saying was the epidemiologists was people should stop moving out of cities. People should be focusing and people should stop thinking about de-densifying de new developments because in fact, um, it is the it's the physical morbidity that comes from the lack of a walk, which is often associated with transit use, that makes people less likely to die from COVID in in cities and more likely to die in the in in the countryside. Um, so that's one thing to point out that in fact COVID hit the cities first and hardest because that's where the people were. Um, but in fact, uh, if you think that COVID or future pandemics are a reason to leave the city, you are wrong. Secondly, we have to acknowledge that that hasn't been the popular opinion. And uh, thousands of people, millions of people probably, globally moved from urban centers to the countryside or the suburbs. Um, that was at a time when our cities, at least, you know, our larger cities, were kind of overheating from real estate and uh, millennials and others wanting to move downtown. So. It caused a correction in those markets, which now is also rebounding. So, uh, the, the 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 main thing I think I can tr contribute to this to this conversation is someone who's looked at cities for a bunch of decades and um, understands the fundamentals of city life um, is that past pandemics have only temporarily reduced the the the, the draw and attractiveness of, of cities. Um, that will be the same case. I, I can say with confidence that. It, the evidence is already showing the, that the cities will um, are attracting back many of the people that they lost. Um, that the you know friction and propinquity of city life, the the energy and the creativity and the density and the diversity of cities, what makes them exist in the first place, um, will continue to power their their popularity and um, whatever people's fears of pandemics are. I think we can be confident that that they're not, you know, they're not down for the count um, because of COVID. And I was saying this a year ago before people had started to come back, but now they're they're coming back and and things are getting pretty normal again, and it's just delightful. That's great to hear. Well, I have one more question for you, and I guess it's also quite forward looking, and um, you know, I'm I'm curious to hear, you know, maybe some ideas of solutions of, you know, walkable cities and, you know, whether that might include having more architects and city planners or urban planners being involved in politics and policy making. Do you think that would be part of a solution going forward? As someone who spent about 10 years studying architecture, I don't have a ton of confidence in the city planning uh, skills of architects. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> I, I think that architecture school trains you in a very specific aesthetic and outlook, which isn't necessarily um, um, considerate of all of the factors that add up to successful places. Um, I do think that um, design is a key aspect of any important, you know, any useful discussion about city making. And um, to the degree that design of in any form and drawing can be added to the conversation, um, that's a positive thing. Someone asked me the other day, how, what, what is design? How do you define design? And I, and I answered, and I, I stick, I'm sticking to it. What, what distinguishes design from, from anything else is, is drawing. If you're not drawing, you're not designing. And if, you, know, you can't design without drawing. And if you're drawing, you probably are designing. I, I've seen so many circumstances where there was some sort of dispute or challenge or just problem in a city, and people were just talking around it and around it and around it. When people started drawing solutions and putting them up on the wall and looking at the drawings, that that's when progress was made and choices were made and things were made better. I think we have to keep design as a big part of the discourse. And you know, the, one of the things that that new urbanism as a movement did was to reemphasize the role of design in the discussion of how our cities um, are formed. Um, Basically, three things make city. Policy makes cities. Policy, design, and management. And all three are really important. And what we see throughout history is that one will rise and the other will fall. You know, the city beautiful gets replaced by the, by the city uh, efficient uh, or the city practical or the city equitable. Um, all those categories are really important. But I think that um, it's important not to lose design in those conversations, but I think designers need to remember that, uh, and, and we new urbanists, I think we're guilty of this for quite some time, we, we kind of stopped thinking about, uh, or didn't think very much about issues of equity and displacement and that sort of thing, um, to our, you know, to the disservice of, our, of, of ourselves and our clients. Um, one thing I've come to realize very slowly as a planner is that city planning, if you do it right, you're making places better. And if you make places better, they become more valuable. If you make them more valuable, they become more expensive and people can get priced out. People who are renting can lose their apartments. People who are owning can end up with uh, tax bills they can't pay because their uh, property is assessed higher. Um, so I think if you're a planner and you're making places better, which is your kind of job description, you need to always keep an eye on issues of displacement and you need to actually emphasize to cities, as I now do and didn't for a couple of decades, emphasize to cities that there are very um, good and proven tools that they can use to stem displacement uh, from you know, property tax abatements to uh, renter to owner programs and uh, um, you know, housing, housing land trusts and other tools that have been used effectively in many cities. I'm not sure if you have the same, if you have problems to the same degree in Australia that we have here, but um, any urban design plan that doesn't include within it a plan to um, spread that growth uh, to everyone in the community and not cause them to have to leave uh, isn't really a complete, a complete effort. Wow, that's quite a lot of food for thought. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today, and I, you know, I really appreciate your time. Thank you.